0: downtown productions in cooperation with zone radio presents downtown the podcast from the historic zone radio studios here's your host rich kimball
1: yeah what's right hello there welcome in to the podcast i am rich kimball that's carrie haskell we're brought to you every week by cross insurance where security meets strength and welcome to episode number 157 Two very interesting conversations coming up for you this week. In the second half of the podcast, we talk with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Michael Moss about his new book, Hooked. Free will, a food free will, and how the food giants exploit our addictions. An eye-opening book and a fun conversation, as fun as it can be when you're talking about that, that kind of thing. But Michael, a very engaging guy that's coming up in the second half of the podcast but well speaking of engaging guys our first guest this week is a terrific actor he is in the uh, Oscar nominated film the trial of the chicago 7 playing david dellinger Starred in the hit series big sky until his character met a an abrupt demise <laughs> at the end of season 1 and you know him from countless television shows films like zodiac Fargo, and much more, the very talented John Carroll Lynch joining us here on Downtown the Podcast. John, thanks for being with us.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you for asking.
1: We are uh, deep and abiding fans of, of character actors, love them here, and I think, well, I think you're just the best there is, although I, I wondered, is, is does that designation sell you short? Does it do you a disservice to limit you because you've had lead roles before?
0: I don't think uh, I think uh, I think that's an outside distinction that a lot of actors don't really tend to make, whether or not they're character actors or leading men there. I, I can tell you there's a designation called movie stars <laughs> and that that's a very special designation. as our television stars. But that's a different kind of kettle of fish that also is driven by success in terms of fame that has nothing to do with the craft of acting.
1: Well, you keep so busy, and I, th- I think it was Brian Cranston who told us that he he stays busy because, first of all, he remembers when the phone didn't ring, and he's convinced that there will come a time when it stops ringing.
0: Mm. Well, it definitely will. I mean, uh, there's a the the adage in Hollywood is is who's Jack Lemmon? Get me Jack Lemmon. Get me a young Jack Lemmon. Who's Jack Lemmon? <laughs> and for for your for your younger uh, audience members, they're now Googling Jack Lemmon. That's uh, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, it, eventually, unless you're Jack Lemon, people stop ringing, you know, uh, because there's because the stories start to wrap out, you know, they start to, you know, there's only so many times you can, you know, be in a hospital bed until people think maybe somebody else should be in that hospital bed. <laughs>
1: Well, I want to talk about uh, a couple of the more current things you've done and then go back a little bit. Uh, I absolutely love The Trial of the Chicago 7 and uh, your role as David Dellinger in that. Now, you had worked with Aaron Sorkin uh, on The West Wing. Uh, How was this experience?
0: Well, um, I I very much enjoyed working with the cast and with Aaron. Uh, Aaron is is a master craftsman in terms of the words and not just the words of a screenplay, but the way it moves. Um, uh, uh, it's a very dense screenplay, and yet when I read it and when I saw it, I was swept into the story, and I think the audience is, too. Uh, he, he creates characters so effortlessly with, with such small, important moments, and uh, he did that in this film. And he also knows where he's going. He knows what points he wants to make, and he makes them.
1: David Dellinger is such an island of calm for most of the film, but then... He's just had enough of Julius Hoffman and the whole enterprise and to me that uh, when he lets it all go that was one of the highlights of the film
0: well thank you uh, it's uh, uh, Dave Dellinger was a uh, was a uh, one of the most uh, morally incorruptible people of the 20th century he uh, he uh, never really uh, he was an activist from the time he was uh, you know 18 until the time he died he actually um, he actually protested. Uh, the next convention in Chicago with Abby Hoffman's son. so he he never stopped and uh, and uh, he was always deeply committed to uh, to passive resistance. Um, and he did, in the trial, um, get physical with um, with people on on uh, particularly on Bobby Steele's behalf. He tried to prevent them from dragging him from the courtroom by putting his body in the way. So it was very true to what happened in the story that he'd had about enough of that.
1: Uh, The cast has already won the the, uh, Ensemble Award from the Screen Actors Guild, the Oscars, of course, this weekend. You've been through awards season uh, before. Obviously, it's a little different in in the time of COVID.
0: Very different in terms of uh, presentation and availability. You know, I've had the good fortune of being in films that have been nominated and and shows that have been nominated. And the best part about that is that you get to go and Congratulate your fellow actors who did such a wonderful job in the other films, you know, people that you haven't gotten a chance to work with or that you have and that are friends. You can go hobnob with them over drinks and and just enjoy their company in a, in a relaxed and collegial atmosphere. But unfortunately, that's not been the case this time. So I haven't been able to, you know, congratulate personally, you know, friends, you know, people I've worked with colleagues like Viola Davis and those I, I have not gotten a chance to.
1: Uh, we had Dee Dee Pfeiffer on the show a couple of weeks ago, wow. <laughs> and uh, she's been on a couple of times talking about uh, Big Sky, which is uh, just a, a terrific show. Now, we don't want any spoilers uh, in case people have not watched the season yet, but let's just yeah. say this Rich Ligarski is a great character, and uh, I'm safe to say a man convinced of his own moral superiority.
0: <laughs> yes, he is. He is as morally certain as Dave Dellinger. He's just wrong about it. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, that's one of the joys of being an actor is that you can go from you know, one side of the, uh, of the spectrum to another uh, and try to express the humanity uh, that everybody deserves expression of. Rick Ligarski um, has been one of the funnest characters I've ever played day to day because he's just simply willing to do and say anything to get what he wants and uh i i i find that uh fascinating and heartbreaking and uh and uh and and to work with the actors and to work with the words david kelly's words have been it's just been a joy
1: and and there are hints along the way from other characters that rick was not always this way that there was a time when he was on on the straight and narrow do you create and then fill in that backstory for yourself?
0: I've uh, come to understand for myself that it's it's best not to get too specific about a backstory uh, because you end up arguing about something that's never on screen. I have my own secrets about that, and I'm sure that the writing staff does too. But it's clear from the words and it's clear from interactions that at some point, um Rick Lagarsky was a decorated uh, Montana state trooper, and and that's one of the reasons why uh, what happens in the story can be such a surprise to everybody, because they never expect it coming from somebody who's described as Dudley Do-Right. right <laughs>
1: We're talking with John Carroll Lynch here on Downtown. Let's go back, if we can, uh, to Fargo. Now, you had already made a number of films before that, including uh, Grumpy Old Men. You were in Minnesota working at the Guthrie Theater when you read for the part of Norm Gunderson. Is that right?
0: That's correct. Uh, the, uh, um, there was a spate of movies that came through uh, because of tax credits, to be fully <laughs> honest. I mean, uh, the state of Minnesota was, uh, was vying for film and television production and was doing quite well with it while they had the, uh, what they called the snow bait. And uh, um, uh, I was cast in uh, a few movies in a row and it was an amazing experience because I had been working as a theater actor up till then. And for the first six months of, uh, of the year that Fargo was made, uh, I made a living as a film actor in Minnesota. And that's what kind of convinced, convinced me to maybe give it a try. And it was nice to time my, my arrival in Los Angeles you know, uh, talk about fortune. Just, just as essentially, just as uh, Fargo was nominated for best picture, and Fran was nominated for um, Fran was nominated for best actress.
1: It's such an incredible movie. Uh, beautiful, dark humor, a lot of violence as well, and yet there is this sure. this island of calm and sanity whenever Marge and Norm are together
0: it's this uh it's a it's a cold movie with a warm beating heart mm. they're like the uh they're like the they're like the uh you know the uh the kettle stove in the middle of a frozen winter <laughs> two of them and uh and that safe haven and that really abided, abiding biting love the thing that uh norm uh and the relationship that she has with norm provides is safe haven she can go out and see some some leg bouncing in a wood chipper and know she can go home and be safe <laughs>
1: Did I read somewhere along the way that Joel Cohen told you Norm doesn't care about Marge's work?
0: Yeah, that was a really great note because, um, you know, I didn't quite understand it until I saw the movie. His lack of interest in her work means that she, he never, he is never going to ask her, how was your day? (laughs) (laughs) And so it doesn't matter for, you know, for him, it doesn't matter. He loves her and is supports her no matter what she's going to do. And I think that's a, uh, I think all of us crave that kind of, uh, uh, unconditional support.
1: You had such a wonderful role as Steve Carey on the Drew Carey show, which I still think is one of the best comedy ensembles in television history.
0: Well, I'll tell you, uh, you know, the, the group, I've never laughed harder, uh, working in a place than I did on the Drew Carey show. Um, it was, uh, One of the funniest atmospheres I've ever worked in and such a joy to work with everybody. And also it was such a circus because they never they never uh, every week was something outrageous was going to happen, whether it was a live episode or a a dance number or whether or not, uh, you know, whatever outfit I was going to be wearing or (laughs) whatever outfit Mimi was going to be wearing. Something was, going, you know, a bear driving a truck. They didn't care about reality. They cared about humor and and they cared about heart. And uh, I think they did both so beautifully on that show. And I'd love to see uh, people get an opportunity to see more of that show because it's a great show.
1: Yeah. Why isn't that in syndication anywhere?
0: It's a mystery to me. There must be some somebody must be complaining about rights somewhere. That's the only thing I can imagine is that there's some, you know, um, uh, you know, there's some title problem. I don't know what it is.
1: I'm a huge Albert Brooks fan and I, I love your work in looking for comedy in the Muslim world. That must've been uh, an incredible experience to make that journey.
0: Well, it was. And, you know, obviously it's a, uh, it was, uh, to work with him, he's a, he's a comic genius. Uh, and, uh, to be able to do that and get to see India at the same time. I mean, who, who would say no to that? Uh, uh, and, uh, I left working with him. He was so terrific to work with and so brave in his work. I mean, he's so daring. You know, we did these scenes in uh, the Agra train station and an actual train came in. And, you know, I don't think people can really understand unless they've been there how packed a train is in India. I mean, it's it's to the gills. And Sheetal Sheth, who played one of the other characters in the movie, he said he said to her, hey let's try to use this let's get, you know he said to the steady cam operator he said follow us down here let's try to get on this train and then just pretend to get off <laughs> and um and she went down and in uh, hindi asked if uh, they could get on the train and there was just a, a, a person there uh, you know a, a a commuter and he just uh, grabbed the two handles of the uh, right at the door and just pushed enough people back into the car to give us room to get off of the train, mm. uh, so it was just a stolen shot, really. And uh, that kind of bravery and that kind of willingness to do something so, um, you know, um, out of the plan it was really a was really a, a, a great lesson in how to direct.
1: A Very different type of role uh, as Arthur Lee Allen in David Fincher's Zodiac. Which I think it's just a a tremendous film and a couple of great scenes that you're in. And my favorite is that scene in the hardware store with Graysmith when when so much is said with just looks.
0: Yeah, and uh, and said by the filmmaker, you know, that's the flip side, the the meticulous and uh, prepared nature. I've never worked with uh, any other director. I've worked with directors as um, as accomplished and as meticulous, but never quite so uh, relentlessly meticulous as David Fincher and um, when uh, when uh, when uh, Roy Smith comes into the hardware store and the character that I play on appears, he's behind a sign that says your featured item <laughs> which makes me laugh. I think that's hilarious.
1: When a director is that detail oriented, is that is that in a way freeing for you as an actor?
0: Well, it can be. I think you have to accept the parameters of any individual director they're the one laying the floor that you're going to dance on. And and there are rules to that floor. And you have to uh, intuit them and understand them and play along with them. And like the, you know, uh, Albert's, uh, Albert Brooks's, you know, uh, improvisation of the uh, staging at that moment, you need to be able to go with that. And you also need to be willing to do 60, 70, 80 takes of a scene. If that's what's necessary, you have to be willing to, uh, to, to, Um, collaborate, co-labor with the director and the director's vision. That's what the joy of it is. And that's what I learned when I directed Harry was, you know, not only is it uh, that way that you have to, uh, the actor has to collaborate with the director, but, you know, you, you know, the director changes their uh, technical, I mean, their direction to, to match the actor as well. It's a, it's a translation in both directions. I
1: had a friend who uh, is an actor in Boston and he had a small part in, Mystic River, and he to this day, raves about Clint Eastwood and the fact that uh, on the first day, Clint knew everybody's name, and including the extras. Of course, the crew had been with him for 100 years, but he said it was just yeah. such a supportive environment for
0: actors. Without a doubt, it was. And, uh, and I had the good fortune of, of doing scenes where Clint had a lot of dialogue, you know, which is not very usual for mm. films that he's acting in. We had a four-page scene, and uh, you know, we actually improved a lot in that scene. It was, uh, it was a rare occurrence in Malpaso Pictures to have something so, so loose. Uh, most of the time, you get one or two takes, and you're on your way. You know, uh, and uh, but uh, the day we were shooting uh, his funeral in the f- film, spoiler alert, um, uh, he you know set the stage and set the crane shot, and he looked at the monitor through a uh, run-through, and then he goes. OK, we're ready. And a stepladder was brought and he climbed up into the open casket and he laid down in his suit. And then uh, he said the, the uh, film, uh, you know, the uh, uh, cameraman said rolling And he goes, all right, whenever you're ready. And then he just laid down and put a <laughs> <over> his his <laughs> over his heart. And uh, Christopher Crowley started the eulogy. And then at the end of the eulogy, there was a long pause as he laid there. And then he popped his head up and he goes, did we get it? Did, did we get it can we move on well we're moving on <laughs> we're we talking that's confidence in this crew
1: <laughs> talking with john carroll lynch on Dante. well you you touched on lucky uh your directorial debut is such a, a wonderful movie now i understand you were uh you were cast to act in the film before they asked you to direct
0: yeah i was going to play uh, uh joe the uh the diner owner and uh And then um, Drago and Logan, the writers, asked me if I was interested in directing it instead. They wanted an actor to direct. They wanted a character actor to direct it. And and they asked me if I would do it, and I uh, jumped at the chance.
1: Well, it's a beautiful movie, but uh, obviously some challenges, first of all, in working with an 89-year-old actor and an actor who's famously said that he doesn't act.
0: Yeah, he lied about that. I mean, he (laughs) lied about the fact that he didn't act. He just... He just, uh, I think he did that mostly so directors wouldn't give him notes. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's mostly what he did it for. But, uh, but also, um, you know, his age was a challenge in, in terms of timing, in terms of scheduling. We needed to give a lot of air around the work days. You know, we got extra days off each week because he needed time to recover because we would send him, you know, like when we were walking in the desert uh, in the town he walked six or seven miles on that day. And that was just in the takes, you know, that was just from, you know, action to cut. He walked a lot and, you know, he was 89 and, uh, you know, um, you know, for a guy who smokes the way he did and drank the way he did, it was incredible, um, you know, uh, that he was alive, let alone able to walk seven miles in a day. It was pretty impressive.
1: Could you tell in the moment what a magical scene you had when uh, David Lynch and Harry were working together.
0: The love that they expressed to each other, the warmth between them, uh, between David Lynch and Harry Dean, is so palpable when they're sitting together uh, that it just just poured through the lens, you know. And um, that's what was needed for the characters. And it was so great that David said yes, and he did it only because of Harry. You know, he would show up for Harry just as Harry had shown up for him. And um, and he was so great in the movie and so respectful to me. As a first-time director, I couldn't have asked for anything better. And also, it really helps the movie because that warmth that they have together, when he's not there in that chair like Statler and Waldorf at the end of that bar, <laughs> the audience really feels the lack of presence there. They really feel that empty chair just like Lucky does.
1: What was the biggest surprise uh, in, in being a first-time director?
0: Uh I don't know. I, I can't really, I don't know really what the biggest surprise was, but the funniest thing that happened was on the very first day of filming, we set we were working with Ed Begley as the doctor and Harry in the doc, at doctor's office. And uh, the thing was set and uh, the camera said, ro- you know, the, the sound said rolling and uh, 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 the camera said set. And then there was this pause and I'm looking at the monitor and Harry's sitting there and then he turns to the, uh, turns and says loud enough for me to hear, well, say action, man. That's why you took the gig, right? do <laughs> like, so you say that? <laughs> I had forgotten that was my job.
1: <laughs> minor detail there.
0: <laughs> it was a minor detail. I never forgot it again.
1: <laughs> uh, you have created some of the most indelible television characters in, in recent memory on the several seasons of American Horror Story you've been a part of, it, whether, it's, whether it's Twisty the Clown, or Benjamin Richter. Scary, scary men, but also what makes them great is that these are well-rounded characters and and you understand that they're part of a journey.
0: You know, one of the uh, bylines, the slug lines of American Horror Story is all monsters are human. And um, they they, uh, have, in my experience, um, stayed true to that for those two characters, for Twisty and for... Mr. Jingles slash Benjamin Richter, they they become fully rounded and they do what great horror does uh, when it's done really well, when you have an opportunity like Boris Karloff did with Frankenstein. They not only create fear, they create pity. And um, you become, uh, you find them, uh, you find those characters, It's too, in the writing, you just find those characters really, um, it's sad what's happened to them. And it's sad what they've become. And I really have appreciated that in terms of how they've written them and certainly how uh, uh, I've tried to express them.
1: When you join these worlds that that Ryan Murphy creates, do you know where you're going or do you just accept on faith that, that you'll get somewhere that will have a big payoff?
0: He has been true to his word about where it's going in all circumstances that I've worked with him. And his work as a director is so sumptuous and so uh, his worlds are so fully realized and so elegant uh, that um, I I trust him implicitly. Um, I'll go where he tells me to go and find out what it looks like when it's over Um, because uh, he's earned that trust. Um, Sometimes when you're working with directors, that you don't know or that you're not sure about, you have to ask a lot more questions.
1: <laughs> As a stage actor, you're always you're thinking about uh, things like projection and blocking. When you're doing TV and film, it's it's a different ballgame. But I saw I saw an interview where you said that it, it it made a big difference when you stopped worrying about some of those things and just realized that the professional crew was going to make sure that uh, you were, you were being, you're in the scene, you were on camera, you were on your mark where you needed to be. And that allowed you to just focus on the character.
0: Yeah. The, you know, and directing has made that even more clear that the, uh, you know, the process of acting is, is, is captured by the camera and captured by the microphones, by the sound department. And, uh, and uh, the director is in, in charge of those things. And so, as an actor, I'm free to explore the moment-to-moment life of the character as it unfolds. And that's the job both on stage and on film. The joy of film is that you can do it with uh, such, an, such a, a wonderful freedom of, of movement and and the moment unfolds so delicately. On stage, you have the same opportunity and you have the responsibility and the authority to make sure the audience sees and hears it. So you're in charge of what, they, what the end of the thing is going to look like but you're not in charge of that on film and you're not in charge of that on television that's somebody else's job and you have to trust that they're going to do a good job with it
1: you've worked with uh, so many friends of our show you did a couple episodes um, three episodes maybe of veep with our friend tim simons another great ensemble sure
0: yeah yeah that boy that show was so fun to work on she's a hero of mine as an actor, louis Dreyfus is a hero, and Tim is amazing on that show and uh, I can't help with uh, with the Matt Gates thing to think of Jonah I, I can't help with <laughs> exactly the fact that you know they started that show when it was a satire, and they ended that show when it was a documentary
1: well yeah, I, I remember Tim telling us before the last season you know we, we can't do anymore because how do you satirize something that's already ridiculous?
0: It's it's it was so clear. They were like w- w- they already anticipated so many of the things that actually happened
1: well, including and,
0: COVID, and, including COVID, <laughs> including COVID. That's right. He was he was patient zero <laughs> in the last season. It's insane.
1: <laughs> and you also did. And I have to think it was an interesting experience working with our friend, uh, Ileana Douglas and Madonna on the next big thing.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, Ileana's great. And she's so funny. And that show that that show was such an interesting one Um, because, I mean, John Schlesinger was, you know, a legendary director and and it was exciting to work with him. And, uh, you know, Madonna was uh, was Madonna, you know, so all of her entourage comes with her. And uh, and it was interesting. Ileana really kept me laughing throughout that that experience in a way that uh that i will always cherish always cherish <laughs> from her
1: when will you be back in the director's chair again anything in the works
0: i'm working on a couple of things now um uh, uh, working on in an in, in independent film in my circumstances is like going to somebody and talking them into building a house on their land <laughs> And you're going to build the house you want to build, and they can't tell you what it is, what, it, what it's going to be or what it's going to include. And it, would it be okay if they paid for it? That's the <laughs> kind of conversation you're having. So you really have to find, uh, you know, the right individuals who are willing to take the ride. And, and, and uh, I'm just about to go out with something that I'm excited about. I don't want to jinx it. And I, I want to make sure it would be a, a job where I would not only direct but also act, which would be a new experience.
1: Well, we wish you luck with that. Uh, We're so happy to get the chance to talk with you. Been a big fan of your work forever, and uh, you always turn in top-notch quality, but especially honest performances. Thanks so much for being with
0: us, John. Thank you very much, and have a good day.
1: That is John Carroll Lynch. uh, Interesting guy and a terrifically talented actor. And and again, we we mentioned it. If you haven't seen the wonderful film that he directed with Harry Dean Stanton, Lucky, uh, check that out. It's available on Hulu, and you can get it there. We'll uh, take a break. Hear from our friends at Cross Insurance and come back with author Michael Moss and talk food.
2: where security meets strength. Sugar. Oh, honey, honey. You are my candy girl.
1: Written by friend of our show, Andy Kim. But that's not why we play Sugar, Sugar. It's to introduce our next guest, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author, of the brand new book, Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Here's our conversation with Michael Moss on Downtown. I love the, the last two books so much. And, and for anybody who didn't read Sugar, Salt, Fat, the, the term addiction might seem a little strong. But as you point out, sugar, salt, and fat are more effective at getting to the brain and, and do it faster than the nicotine or, or just about any other highly addictive substance you can think of.
2: Yeah, And actually, Rich, if we'd had this conversation five years ago and you suggested to me, the Twinkies were like addictive, like heroin, I would have like, but that's like totally nuts. Though. Um, you know, I mean, who, you know, who holds a, up, up up a convenience store, armed robbery <laughs> to get like junk food. Right. And, and where are the, like, the harsh chemicals that you find the drugs and, and even sort of cigarettes and alcohol in snack foods and processed food. But I have to tell you, crawling back into the underbelly of this trillion-dollar industry and talking to drug addiction experts who now study food from an addiction perspective, um, as well as sort of these chemists and marketing people who work for the industry, I'm actually convinced that in many ways these products, are even more problematic for us than alcohol, tobacco, and 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 some drugs. And the reason I say that is, even going beyond kind of the salt, sugar, fat, the additives that they use, mm. they figured out ways to tap into our natural biology that draws us to food and has for millennia. But they've changed the nature of our food so much that now there's this incredible mismatch between what our genetics are telling us, and what these products are delivering.
1: Yeah, and you point out that our our biological drive to eat didn't matter all that much until they changed the food. So how did big food begin to change things up, I guess, back in the early 80s when this really kicked into high gear?
2: Yeah, Yeah, so we love by nature um, food that's inexpensive that meant sort of less en- energy expenditure of our part it only made sense when you're in a hunter-gatherer society instead of running down an antelope for dinner, just grab that aard bark that's sitting there <laughs> so the food companies you know brought in these chemical laboratories they called flavor houses to mix and match and mimic the flavors of natural foods but their overarching mission is to reduce the cost of food because they know if they can you know bring in a box of toaster breakfast pastries at 10 cents less than it was last week, we're going to get super excited about that. We're drawn by nature to food that's highly variable because that used to mean that we were probably getting enough different kinds of nutrition to make us healthy. So what do the companies do? They create the cereal aisle, which has (laughs) 200 versions of sugary starch all there to kind of fool us into thinking we're actually getting real nutrition with those, those products. And maybe lastly, and more importantly, we drop drawn by nature to calories, right? Calories is fuel. It was a matter of life and death for most of our existence. But now the companies are packing in empty calories into their snack foods. So we can sort of get as much as a days worth of calories in a bag of chips without our body sort of recognizing that, our gut recognizing that, the brain recognized it. So, so we don't put the stop on overeating.
1: Well, you mentioned snacking and you point out in the book that Americans have essentially added a fourth meal to our day that we average almost 600 calories a day through snacking.
2: They sold us hard on convenience. And this goes back to the 60s when more women began working out of the house and men didn't pick up the slack and start cooking more. So we turned to the food industry and said, can you help us out? And boy, did they. I mean, everything about these products we're talking about here, and it's not just snack foods and candy and ice cream. It's like 90% of the stuff in the grocery store is built for ultra convenience. And the hidden price in that is our health and our over-dependence on these products. I mean, even before the pandemic, obesity rate had pushed past 42% in this country as a reflection of our over-dependence on their convenience in this product
1: we're talking with michael moss here on downtown uh, also very important to look at the power of food memory and by the way were we neighbors or something because i laughed out loud when you mentioned those appian way pizzas that were such a treat
2: <laughs> as a kid i and, was and, raised <laughs> in california so i thought they were like a california thing but but because uh, when i was a to kid. Even from elementary school, I was like making Appian Way pizzas in the sixth grade. It's pretty incredible, right? But speaking of that, so memory, right? And that's bringing back memories, kind of talking about. I went into a Kellogg's Research Development Factory where they were experimenting at a batch of Pop-Tarts that's messed up, and they were dumping the dough into a big vat for disposal. That aroma walking across the Research Development Factory floor took me right back. To elementary school, um, where I ate Pop-Tarts, sort of walking into, into the, the, the house when I came home from school. Instantly, and I hadn't had a Pop-Tart in like 40 years. Memory is one of the things that I argue sort of makes these food products even more problematic than alcohol, cigarettes, some drugs, because we begin forming memories for these products at a really early age, possibly even when we're still in the womb, depending on what our mother is eating. And we hold those memories for life and often associate them with other emotions. And so that's why the industry spends so much money advertising, marketing. They're basically getting in our heads and creating, uh, creating memories. And so that's why the soda companies know when, you know, if they can get a soda in the hands of a kid when they're at the ballpark with their parents having the most kind of joyous moment of their life. That soda will forevermore get associated with a joy in the later in life when they're wanting a little joy and comfort, they will think of the soda.
1: I found it very interesting that you point out for the longest time. The belief was that the stomach was the real problem in getting us to eat, and that led to the huge rise in bariatric surgeries, but, but it's the brain that we should be targeting.
2: Yeah, I think the brain is sort of, you know, all important. Addiction happens in the brain, hunger happens in the brain our likes and dislikes for food. And it's kind of a combination of the two. And people who have undergone bariatric surgery as sort of a last desperate resort to try to control their eating um, will notice that the brain will still sort of activate it and they can still end up getting craving um, for the foods that they were trying to avoid by surgically shrinking, um, shrinking their stomach.
1: I found it ironic that the companies that produce most of our convenience foods also now own all of the major diet plans. And, and it seems like a real dichotomy because I got the impression from the book that there really are people within the big food world that sincerely want us to be healthier.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, look, I still don't see this as this evil empire that intentionally set out to make us, you know, you know way overweight or otherwise ill on their products. I mean, these are companies doing what all companies want to do, make as much money as possible by selling as much product as possible. But I was astounded to learn that back in the late 70s, when obesity began to rise as a reflection of our losing control of their products, none other than the biggest processed food companies began buying up the biggest, most popular dieting methods, so that Weight Watchers, Slim Fast, South Beach Diet, Atkins became to be owned by big processed food manufacturers. But even more than that, they marched around the grocery store you know, starting to make kind of diet versions of their regular products. And so that's why, you know, we ended up in the freezer aisle looking at hot pockets made by Nestle <laughs> and then lean pockets made by Nestle sitting right next to it. And I think what this did was just kind of, you know, again, sort you of know, shifted the burden onto us to kind of figure out which one did we need this week? <laughs> and were they really all that different than the other? Um, and I think, and I think the bottom line there, and, 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 and you know, from, from doing this reporting and looking at this research and talking to the experts, is this is not our fault. This overdependence on these products is not a matter of a lack of willpower on our part um, or you know, executive function. Um, these products are designed in a way that kind of robs us of free will in making decisions about what we eat and how much.
1: And we talked about memory. Can you explain the impact of sugar and fats in the brain that I believe it's the the striatum in creating what's called habit memory?
2: Oh, yeah. So there's new research. So a lot of people find that sugar is a trigger for cravings. And one of the things we've learned from drug addiction is that cravings come on happen so fast and so hard that it's almost impossible to sort of save you know, say no once they hit you. Um, And so sugar alone is no But what scientists have discovered recently is that sugar in tandem with fat activates a part of the brain known as the striatum where compulsive behavior habit forming lives. And so it's the combination of those two things, which are found in things like milkshakes and chocolate chip cookies. And, you know, candy bars are as much sort of about fats and oils as they are about sugar. Um, And so it's that combo synergistically affecting the part of the brain, again, where sort of willpower is not the issue.
1: What can we learn, Michael, from the humble fruit fly?
2: Uh So (laughs) one of the things that the companies are doing now in response to our growing concern and efforts to kind of change our eating habits is they're going around the grocery store again and reducing the amount of sugar in their products by substituting in non-caloric sweeteners, right? Sometimes cocktails, two or three of these in products. And not just soda, but like lots of stuff in the store. Um, And there hasn't been a whole lot of research on how that affects us, our biology. Because think about it. You're tasting something sweet. You're expecting calories. The calories don't come in. How does the brain and the gut react? We really don't know, but it turns out One of our closest allies in the animal kingdom is that tiny little fruit fly. (laughs) It turns out we love the same things. We love fruit, sweet things, fermented. They love beer. Um, And so they did this experiment where they took some fruit flies, put them on their regular chow, and then added some of these non-caloric sweeteners. And then the flies that got those non-caloric sweeteners went into starvation mode. (laughs) It's like their little brains were screaming at them you're not getting food, you're not getting calories, even though they were. And so they couldn't sleep, they couldn't sit down, they'd just flutter around, and the poor thing just like Mm. went bonkers.
1: So many people are dieting. You point out that if it becomes an obsession about the food we eat, the calories we're consuming, that that in and of itself is also just another form of
2: disordered eating. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think a trouble with food sort of happens on this spectrum. And at one, there could be, People who are binge eating and totally losing control. And the middle neighbor people who just kind of get a craving for cookies at 3 p.m. And then there's kind of like the, you know, the rest of us who just, you know, our trouble is just kind of the, the, the feeling that we've lost the beauty and the ritual of home-cooked meals with, with families and friends. And, and, and at the end of the day, you want to wish that we didn't have to think about food in this way. But I think the food companies have forced us to. And changing our habits now, after a lifetime of sort of hearing them tell us what we should value in food, is really hard and does take a certain amount of effort on our part. And of course, you can go overboard and become like crazy concerned about certain aspects of food when when and, and miss the bottom line, which is: is this healthy for me? Is this is this you know a balanced diet? Is 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 is, is, is this really food that I'm eating?
1: So what can we do? We are who we are. The companies are going to do what they do. But but you offer some suggestions that I think make a lot of sense. And maybe the most important is to just to slow down, to make food uh, an event, to savor it, to taste it and to celebrate it and not be rushing through and counting numbers and looking at charts and things like that
2: yeah yeah I think paying attention to it. I mean, they love to make products that sort of inspire mindlessness on our part, right? We're eating with one hand while we're doing something else. There's studies showing that people who watch t v while eating dinner will eat more and gain weight, so paying the sort of attention to it, I also like this idea of turning the tables on these big multinational companies and taking back things they took for us and so this is a tiny thing, but in our house, we've been trying to you know drink less sugary soda mm. um. And we've managed to switch over to plain seltzer because there's something really great about the bubbles, the effervescence in, in seltzer. Um, and even my 17-year-old now is able to drink plain seltzer and not miss the soda too much that so he turns back to that. But the cool thing about it is that before there was sugary soda, there was plain seltzer. There's even a town in Germany called Seltzer, right, where the population's that are on for centuries debating the merits of one spring water versus another So. So I love this idea of these companies not really having invented these things that are causing us so much trouble. There's nothing wrong with salt, sugar, fat in the hands of a good cook. But having kind of taken those and corrupted them to their own ends, and our now being able to turn the tables on them and find ways to use those things, even convenience, um, to our own benefit.
1: And one of the things you suggest is to spend more time in the perimeter, the outer aisles of the supermarket.
2: Yeah, that's where the produce is. That's where the meat is. If you eat meat, that's where the dairy is. Um, I also sort of think that the more we can find ways to do our own basic cooking, the better off we're going to be. To speak about mindfulness, right? Just the act of sort of doing a little cooking. I have to tell you, which I have a spaghetti sauce recipe now down to 93 seconds. (laughs) And granted, if it simmers a bit, the family's more apt to actually eat it, right? But the actual work part is not that much. and I'm buying like a whole, you know, a can of whole plum tomatoes, and I don't have to get the massive amounts of salt and sugar that comes in some of the prepared versions of spaghetti sauce. And it costs less than than the jars do. And doing kind of that basic cooking that, that focuses me on the food a little bit, gets the brain and the stomach and the gut expecting that food coming in. Um, And and I think the more that we can find ways to cook things for ourselves, um, that's a huge step forward in, in helping us change what we value in food.
1: And if you have kids, getting them involved in that process, too.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And creating new habits. You know, when our kids were young, you know, we wanted them to eat more broccoli because every nutritionist says, You know, try to fill up half your plate in vegetables, whole fruits, and you're, like, more than halfway home to changing your diet and improving your health. And my wife said, look, you know, if we just get them to try broccoli, like, 19 times, they'll love it. And there's something to that. Um, Because actually, one of my scientists, I was pushing him to say, look, what's more trouble for? Salt, sugar, fat, you know, convenience? Um, and And he goes... Actually, Michael, I think we like what we eat more than we eat what we like, meaning that if you can get yourself to sort of shift over to a different way of eating healthier and stick to that long enough that you sort of begin developing these likes for it, wow, that's just, that's just incredible.
1: The book is called "Hooked: Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions." And when you've read that, if you haven't already, go back and read "Sugar, Salt, Fat" as well. Michael Moss, it's been a real treat for us to talk with you this afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Tell you what, I can't have that discussion and read that book without thinking at least a little bit differently about how you eat. I've you know, tried anyway, but I think I, after reading the book and talking with Michael, I think I, I try even a little harder to avoid. Processed
2: foods. Yes, and and processed foods is something that I've long tried to avoid as much as possible. It's you need to avoid whatever they're hiding in there. If you make it yourself, or you buy it from someone that's making an actual product, then you have a little bit better idea of what has gone into the food.
1: Right, and you know you have to wonder when you buy the packaged, the convenience foods. What did they put in there that allows that expiration date to be about three years from now?
2: Exactly, yeah. Th- that's always a concern. If, if it, And that's a good rule of thumb. If it's convenient, you have to start wondering yeah. what's in it. <laughs> yeah, and,
1: and you don't want to know is what we learned uh, mm. in that conversation. Uh, again, the book is called Hooked. Our thanks to Michael Moss and thanks to the great John Carroll Lynch. And then thanks to you for joining us in this week's edition of of downtown the podcast. We'll see you next time right here.